Okay. Well, let's get going. Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm Peter Down. This is Direct Left. If you want to ask a question or make a comment, you can download the call-in app at callin.com. And also, don't forget to uh, sign up for the newsletter at directleft.com. Today, I am excited to be joined by my friend, Jason Cole. He's a great guy and an excellent candidate. Uh, we work together. And um, what I'd like to do, Jason, is to to really start at the beginning, beginning, and to get to know you as a person, to sort of figure out how you got to where you are right now. Running for office is always a big decision for anyone running for Congress. And it comes with a lot of responsibility and it takes a lot. Um, and I've worked with many congressional and presidential candidates. You know, it takes a lot of soul searching to, to reach the conclusion that you want to run for office. And especially we're at a time where we know that electoral politics is just not enough. We, we, there are all sorts of other ways that we're going to have to be able to bring about change with direct action, mutual aid, and other forms of, of protest. But running for office still matters. I, at least I believe so. I think it's very important, and I know you do too. So why don't we do this? Jason, first of all, um, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and a little bit about your background, your family background, again, to whatever extent you're willing to share, obviously, whatever you're comfortable with. But let's learn more about you. Sure. Uh, and I just want to say first that I really appreciate appreciate the opportunity to um, shed a little light on my campaign. And I, I don't often talk about myself. I talk a lot about the campaign. Um, but I think it is a good idea for people to get to get to know uh, who I am as a person and, and, and really why I'm doing this sort of beyond uh, just the policy issues that I'm fighting for. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm 50 years old. Um, I was born in 1971 uh, to uh, an Air Force officer. Uh, my father was uh, an officer in the, in the U.S. Air Force, served in Vietnam, um, retired in uh, 1982 from the Air Force, and then um, he uh, got contracted back uh, when I was a junior in high school uh, to go work for, for Lockheed Martin, the biggest weapons contractor in the world, yay. Um, and, but he ran the flight simulator for uh, Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque. That was what he did for Lockheed Martin. Um, he used his, his flight skills um, from the Air Force. Uh, but, you know, I, I grew up in a Reagan Republican household, um, actually grew up in England. My my parents um, lost uh, my older sister when I was just a baby. Uh, she was two and a half years old. We, we lived in Southern California where my dad was um, stationed. Uh, and uh, I was born in San Bernardino and, and we had a backyard swimming pool and my younger sister uh, drowned in it. And uh, my parents wanted to move away from that area for, for obvious reasons. And my mom was uh, a British citizen and they moved back to England. So from, from 72 to 82, I grew up in England and, uh, you know, ostensibly I was, I was British. I grew up with a British accent. I went to um, schools with the, with the school uniform. And um, <laughs> if you can imagine the, the Pink Floyd videos from, uh, uh, the you know, 1979 when the wall came out that was that mm -hmm. was me growing up i was you know i was a, a british schoolboy um and uh you know i 
kids in school, and, and I think you you probably know this um, because you're a world citizen. School starts substantially earlier. I, I think I, I started preschool when I was three um, and uh, was in, you know, I was in accelerated classes there. And um, when we moved back to England, I mean, sorry, moved back to America, my, my um, dad had decided he wanted to move back um, uh, after he retired from the Air Force. He was stationed in, in England. Uh, he did search and rescue up to I- Iceland uh, uh, over in the North Sea. Um, I've actually got one of his commendation medals for uh, saving people on a sinking fishing trawler. So, you know, there's there's some good things that we do out there in the world with our military. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, um, we moved back after he retired and I spent what would have been most of my um, sixth grade school year uh, traveling across the country. I had grandparents in Florida. I had great grandparents in Texas. Um, I had other grandparents in Southern California. And so we took uh, months traveling across uh, the, the lower portion of the continental United States, visiting with family, uh, not going to school. My sisters and I not going to school. Settled in Ashland, Oregon when I was in sixth grade uh, in the winter months and decided we didn't want to be snowed in there. And then ended up in Washington in um, I guess it was April of 1983. And I have been, um, well, I would consider myself a Washington native at this point. You know, that was my sixth grade year. I started going to, going to school then. Um, and there have been since, uh, you know, that's almost 40 years. There have been uh, only a few years that I have not lived in Washington state. Um, so that was, that was sort of my young formative years. Went to, uh, Went to a very rural school in South Pierce County. Anybody who knows Washington State geography, um, I was about 25 miles uh, south of Tacoma, um, and uh, it was logging country. Uh, it was very white. Um, there were there were not many people of any color um, out in that area. Um, it was what would be considered uh, redneck, um, pretty racist, uh, to tell you the truth. Um, and, uh, you know, honestly, I, I tell people I, I grew up I grew up in a fairly racist household. It was uh, it was a fairly racist and homophobic homophobic household. And that was, um, you know, my my father was uh, Florida born. He was a he was from the south, you know, not really deep south. But, um, you know, he, he grew up with racist attitudes um, and, and I and I tell people, you know, it's it, he's. He wasn't a, you know, burn a cross on your lawn racist. Um, he was just a subtle sort of white people are better racist. And that's that's what I grew up with. Um, I was never comfortable with it, you know, sort of moving into my high school years when I started understanding things like that a little bit better. I was never comfortable with it. But I tell people, you know, if you grew up in a military household, um, one of the things that you don't do often is, is argue with your father. So, <laughs> you know. I had I had a lot of sort of inner turmoil there dealing with my parents' racism, not feeling like I was in a position to call it out. But, um, you know, when I was in 10th grade, I got to go to high school in Tacoma, which was inner city. Uh, I went to an honors program. I, I was in the international baccalaureate program. Um, the school I went to in Tacoma was the only school in the state that offered it at the time. Um, and my parents said, yeah, you should go do this honors program. So there in this honors program, I had, I had come from a very 
rural white school in junior high and then in the mix of a very inner city school where I saw a lot of things, met a lot of people that I had literally never met before in my life um, and started realizing that all the things that my dad was saying about people were wrong. And, and you have to, I think I started doing the work in my own mind to undo the things that I had grown up with um, really when I was in 10th grade, when I was, when I started meeting people and going, Oh my God, you know, People, people are not, people are not what my dad is telling me they are, you know, it's very much a, the, the ills of the world are always blamed on some other rather than, you know, having a collective mindset that we're all here to support each other. Um, so, uh, that, that kind of takes me through high school, um, and, uh, went to the university of Washington, um, was initially intending to be a veterinarian. Uh, that was what I had wanted to do for years and years and years. And so I entered the University of Washington as a freshman in 1989 uh, in their biochemistry program, but also got a job at a veterinary office and realized right away that that really wasn't what I wanted to do because I get a very, very emotionally attached to animals. Um, and did you have, and did you guys, did you have animals when you grew up? I did. Yeah, we we had um, we well, we had a dog. I mean, I, but yeah. I was I was a very I was a very animal friendly person. Right. Um, and uh, my dad was a very animal friendly person, too. In fact, he's the kind of person you can imagine a conservative saying something like this, that he likes animals more than he likes people. But, you know, I was going to say, yeah, no, I was going to say, I mean, your background is absolutely fascinating. You, you and I have spoken before and we've talked a little bit about both our backgrounds. But, um, you know, the more I hear about it, it's 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 really quite. And, and uh, I have to just say, I know it's a long time ago. I'm very, very sorry that your family went through the loss of your sister. That's a terrible, terrible thing for anyone to ever have to go through. I can't even imagine the pain that that, that your parents went through and that you subsequently went through once you found out so yeah uh, well i you know my parents divorced after 37 years of marriage they divorced in 2003 mm -hmm. um and i and i talked with my dad about you know what was going on and my 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 mother was um she was a stay-at-home mom um she was not you know I, I hate to use the word given but that's really what it was she wasn't really given a whole lot of control over her own life it was very much a 60s 70s 80s stay-at-home mom raising three kids dinners on the table and ready she didn't really have her own life she was she was not i want to say um allowed really to have her own interests i mean she she was a seamstress you know she made she made clothes for my sister because back then it was it, it was cheaper to make clothes than it was to buy clothes so my mom you know occupied a lot of her time making clothes for for my sisters um and um you know once we were old enough to not need like full time attention um, she got herself a, a side job as a as a school aide for developmentally disabled classroom in a local elementary school. And she was, you know, she was she really enjoyed it. She really enjoyed getting out. Of, I did you know, as a high school student, I, you know, didn't understand sort of the entrapment that she felt um, 
but I understood that my, you know, my parent, my parents later told me, or my mom later told me that the only reason my parents stayed together was because of us, that they wanted us to have a stable home and not to have to go through divorce. Um, but my mom developed a gambling addiction later in life. Um, and that led to, that was a big factor in their divorce because she went through, you know, spending money on credit cards and transferring money and, you know, eventually my, my dad found out that she had racked up somewhere around $150,000 in, in credit card debt. And, wow. you know, that, that was kind of it for them. But, you know, my, my sisters and I were all long graduated by then. And, but my dad told me, um, going back to my sister, he said, we never healed from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it was all, it was always there because my sister had died while he was serving in Vietnam. Right. Um, and he did not know about it until, you know, he came back. In fact, I, I have in my archive somewhere a letter. Um, it's a really pristine quality letter from, from 1972, May of 1972, where my dad is writing to my grandmother, his mom, um, and was really, you know, excited to be, you know, he was telling stories about, you know, being there in Vietnam, where he was literally saying, we don't know what the hell we're here for. Uh, nobody seems to know what the hell is going on. We're just hoping we can get back alive and I can't wait to get back and see my kids. Not realizing at the time that my sister had already, you know, been gone a couple of weeks. Oh my, oh my, that's all, that's terrible. Wow. Uh, But yeah, I mean, you don't, it was, it was, um, in many ways, uh, unrecoverable because he, he very much blamed my mother for not paying close enough attention you know, right. um, right. so yeah, those tragedies, uh, um, that is one of the issues, blame and guilt. And, and as you say, um, very often it's almost impossible, um, to, to get over it. it. It's a scar that's open your, your whole life. You know, I, uh, you know, I saw so much pain in Lebanon where I grew up and those wounds, as you know, Jason, they don't, they don't always heal. Right. Uh, you know, they, they close up, they reopen, but that, that the trauma, the pain can last forever. Um, so, wow. And, and, um, and, and, you know, that shapes your whole family background. Also growing up in the UK as someone myself who, who, who grew up in, in the Middle East, um, it does give you a different perspective. It's always fascinating to me when you tell, when you, when you tell the story about growing up in, in the UK, uh, because, it does give you a different perspective, even though you were younger, on life in the United States. And I'm, I'm not saying that everybody has to live outside America to, to understand America, but you do get a different lens on what life is here versus somewhere else. Is that, do you feel that way? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's very, it's very international. I mean, we went to, we went on vacation in France. It was just no big deal. And, you know, everybody, it was a standard thing in England for people to go um, vacation in, in the Balearic Isles, which are South of Spain, um, Menorca and Mallorca. I mean, people were talking about, talked about that all the time. They would go to Portugal, they would go to Spain, they would go to Italy, you know? And so, um, I mean, England can be very nationalist, a lot of national pride there. And I think a lot of countries in Europe have that national pride, but also a sense of, you know, we're, we're part of a larger European community. We're part of a larger world community, um, that, you know, when I think a lot of people that, 
I grew up with here in Washington State. I, you know, like I said, I went to uh, junior high and high school here. And a lot of people you find have never even been out of the States. A lot of people, uh, a lot of people or never been out of the the state, not just the United States, but never been out of Washington State. Uh, A lot of people never really been much farther than 100 miles from home. So um, it is you do get a sense that there are other people out there in the world um, who have different things to offer um, in, in terms of like, you know, global, you know, global community. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, so you took us up uh, to college and, right. you've, and you've given us a good sort of sense of, of, where you grew up in the environment you grew up in, because, uh, you know, we grow up in, of course, in a, in a home environment that influences our, our political views, but also the external environment, the schools you go to, the state you grow up in, the community. Um, if you're, if your family's religious, whether you go to church or not, or synagogue or mosque or however you practice, um, your faith and all of, all of those things go into the formation of our political beliefs and which are always evolving, right? You, you, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an example myself of political evolution and it never stops. So it's interesting to know the background. You came from a sort of conservative military and, 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 and I appreciate your honesty, racism yeah. in the household. And, and, that, and that is in so many households in this country. So when you got to college, is that when you began to really diverge from your, your household's political beliefs? Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, I went through high school being very uncomfortable with, um, my, my father, my father in particular, um, racist attitudes. And it it wasn't something that was pervasive, it, but it came up every now and again. And I was like, Oh, that's really ugly. Um, but I still would have been considered a young Republican when I was in high school because I had not been exposed to any other real avenue of political thought. Um, you know, I remember I remember watching Reagan's second election, my father talking about Democrats. Um, I remember the George uh, Bush senior, um, his, his first election in 1988 and running against Dukakis. And I remember in high school, the Willie Horton ads, and I remember the welfare Queens. And those were the things that my parents focused on and, and how Democrats were, were awful and they wanted to raise taxes and they wanted to let people run wild and there was no order and that kind of thing. So, um, that was, that was a mentality that, like I said, I started to break free of that in high school in my own mind. But yes, when I went to college as a freshman um, and really started talking to people, like I, I was in a, a dorm my um, first year uh, and, and really started talking to people about uh, political thought um, and experiencing like I moved off campus my my second year um and my none of my roommates were white I had um uh two Hispanic roommates from eastern Washington um I used to go out uh and and visit their family over Christmas vacation um and you know I I'm not a religious I was not relate raised in a religious household I mean we were um sort of 
two holiday Catholics. <laughs> we we went to midnight mass and we and we went right. to Easter mass. Uh, mm-hmm. And beyond beyond that, once I was twelve and I did my first communion, my mom, you know, let me go, and she was like, "Okay," she just felt like she had done her part to save my soul. <laughs> Whatever, but you know, no religion mm-hmm. wasn't a big part of my household. Um, but uh, you know, I like I said, I went and, uh, and celebrated Christmas holidays with um, my Latino friends in Eastern Washington. Um, so I got a really good range of different cultural experiences that I had never had before in my life. Um, and I started reading, you know, different avenues of political thought. Um, so yeah, I, I started really, um, not trusting the U S government, um, around the fall of the, the Berlin wall, I guess it was. Um, and I don't remember exactly why, um, other than I knew that we weren't going into Iraq for the right reasons. And I was, I was young at the time. I was 19, 20 years old, trying to figure this out. Um, but I knew we shouldn't have been going to war in Iraq. And I was like, oh my God, I know our government is lying about, um, why we're going to war there. Um, and so I was, I was reading alternate news reports at that time. Um, and what year, what, what year are we talking about? Now? That was 1990. Okay. So the first you're talking George H.W. Bush. H, George H.W. Bush. And I was a, I was a, I'm trying to remember the exact timeline. I mean, August 1990, I think is when I remember sitting in my apartment. So I would have been, it would, it would have been the summer between my freshman and I, my sophomore year when we went to war, uh, with the desert storm war, uh, in Iraq. It was, and, it was one of the first, it was one of the first gang of neocons who ended up, yeah, who ended up yeah. finishing the job with George W. Bush. And but, you, uh, and you his, knew, you knew it was about, you knew it was about resources. Um, mm-hmm. you knew, you know, I, 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 I honestly, I can't remember what exactly I knew at the time, but I had been reading the reports that have since been confirmed that, you know, uh, Iraq had actually, Saddam Hussein had actually reached out to the United States and said, Hey, you got to tell Kuwait to stop drilling into our oil fields. And that's really what it came down to. Um, and the United States said, we take no position on your own, your border disputes. And <laughs> that was a green light for Saddam to say, okay, we'll kick him out ourselves. And as soon as he moved to do that, we, you know, we jumped in and, and, uh, and went to war. Um, but I saw, I was so uncomfortable with the military, the pro-military fervor um, that I really saw all around me. Um, I, I, it was, it was really unnerving um, to see people, I, I just felt like people were bloodthirsty, you know, why, why am I seeing so much bloodthirstiness right now to a country that really has not done anything to us? Um, you know, we may not have liked that, that they invaded Kuwait. They had their reasons for doing it, but that didn't, that didn't have anything to do with us. <laughs> so, so I, I started a severe distrust of, U.S. foreign policy right around then. And that was when I was gathered with other anti-war activists who were, you know, older and more experienced. You know, like I said, I was freshman, sophomore in college, um, but started really listening to them about how the U.S. government. And that was when I started hearing things uh, more because we, you know, we're not too terribly removed from Vietnam at this point. Um, 
and started hearing more about how the government had had tons of lies about Vietnam. And and uh, so I did my camping out and protesting on the steps of the federal building in Seattle. Um, and, and I, you know, at that point I just really became a lifelong anti-war activist. I just had, had seen enough in desert storm in 1990 to know, um, there's really no good reason to go to war. Uh, and if we do, they're probably lying about it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. We, we, we create these figures across the world, fund them, um, these despotic figures, then we invade countries to topple the, the very same people who we funded and propped up. It's, it's an unbelievable scam and it's just to, to sell more, to sell more arms, um, and to, and to test, uh, you know, new weapons. That, that's part of what, uh, for me in Lebanon was these are larger geopolitical forces and they use, um, you know, Ukraine is another example where proxy wars are fought to test new new weapons for, yeah. for the big weapons manufacturers. So um, now I want to do a, a very sudden swerve sort of a, a, a back to a couple of things about your personality, your character and how you developed as, as a person. Because what I'd like to do um, to those of you listening live, and I appreciate you all being here, to those of you um, who will be listening, whether this is in podcast form once it's posted, um, I'd like to, as I say, I, I work with Jason. Um, I want him to win. I think it's an excellent campaign. So, so Jason, I want you to come back repeatedly and 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 maybe co-host for a while and and be part of this. So, I don't know that that this evening I want to go over the entire story um, and all the details of your campaign. I really want to sort of lay the foundation of who you are as a human being first, um, and then in successive um, episodes, I, I want to talk through the details of your campaign. Um, of your district, your political views, your views of the Democratic Party, Republican Party, the duopoly overall. Um, so I want to backtrack and ask you a couple of things about growing up. I know sure. you're a bit, I know you're a musician as I am. Um, I was a professional musician for many years. I know you played bass. And I also wanted to ask, I know um, you said you were not raised religiously, but I want to know more about your personal spirituality and spiritual growth and faith, because faith doesn't have to be part of organized religion. We can all be uh, humans of faith and have faith um, and beliefs that are not necessarily connected to organized religion. So tell me more about your personal faith and spirituality, um, and then a little bit more about your music, because that's all tied together. Okay. So as as far as faith goes, I mean, I consider myself an atheist. Um, I have had periods in my life where... Um, I felt like there might've been something out there for me. Um, I, I, I don't know if I told you that I, I, um, was a member of the Baha'i faith for a while. Uh, I, I thought I'd sort of found a home with the Baha'i faith. Um, and then I just kind of realized, boy, this is another, this is another organized religion that is, I mean, the, the Baha'is, um, have, uh, issues with homosexuality. And I was like, God, okay, I can't do this. I can't do this in an organized sense. Um, have, uh, be a part of something that is, that is, you know, I, I consider, uh, views against homosexuality to be just hateful. You know, it's just hateful and bigoted and the people, the people in the Baha'i faith, I thought were wonderful people, you know? And I was like, you know, if you, if you put a gun to my head and said, pick 
an organized religion to join in with um, the, the Baha'i faith. There are a lot of good things about it. And I, I really think that they want equality. And But there were just some sticking points for me that I was like, you know, it's just this this organized religion thing again. Um, and it's a tool of control. So I've always felt like organized religion has been a, at its core, it's been a tool of mass control. Uh, And I don't mean that to be offensive to anybody. I know other people have uh, different perspectives on religion. Um, But, but as far as what I believe is out there, um, I believe aliens are out there because, (laughs) because Uh it's, you know, I'm a mathematician, right? I taught high school math for, for 18 years and I've, and I was a statistics teacher for a long time. Um, and if, if life can happen here, it can happen somewhere else. And I don't, I don't go beyond that. (laughs) I don't speculate beyond that, Mm -hmm. but the, yes, I believe that there is alien life out there somewhere in the vastness of the cosmos. Um, but what I'm really focused on in terms of my own spirituality is doing whatever I can to um, alleviate suffering on our planet with the time that we have Um, there that I, I feel like that is the center of my faith and spirituality. So, you know, I certainly have moments where I feel extremely connected um, to people and the world and you know the the past and the future i don't i don't believe that there is anything supernatural about it if you read richard dawkins the god delusion um i yeah. think we are we are geared biologically to have these feelings um mm-hmm. of you know sort of wonder and awe at the you know that the hugeness of everything and the and the you know, it's just sort of concepts of infinity. Um, but, but it doesn't really go beyond that for me. Um, that's, I, that's, I, inter- I, that's interesting. And, and, and what's, uh, and sorry, sorry to interrupt, but no, go ahead, go ahead. I, I'm, I, Leela and I are, are, I would say almost the exact opposite. Um, and, but I completely respect your point of view. I try to be as, um, skeptical, you know, healthily skeptical as possible, but, you know, we, we are, spiritual and in in the sense of truly believing that we can feel and touch and experience other realms of existence other than this one and this is just one narrow part of it but i i completely respect your views i i love that we come from different sides of this but um well uh, i i've always thought people people who say well if you don't believe in god where does your you know where does your morality come from and i completely reject that um, that, that is the idea that you would only be a good person if somebody was watching over your shoulder and you thought you were going to hell. You, no, of course. Yes. <laughs> so I reject that as a, as a point of argumentation. And then the idea like, you know, well, what is the, if there's nothing beyond here, what is the point of life? Um, and for me, uh, I've always said that because I believe this is the only life we get, I want to do everything I can. I want to do as much good as I can with my life while I'm here. That is actually what gives me uh, personal meaning. You know, yes, that, and, that, that's and that's so so personal meaning, right? And that's and that's and that's wonderfully said, and so critically important and true. Uh, I think that there is such a conflation of religion with morality. Where in fact I've I've always believed that the, the that the root of and I don't want to get straight too far but this is important to understand and to have this conversation with you to get to know you better, um, 
you know, that religion is really in many ways organized religion. Um, there, there's a social component to it, and, and there's a component of the, the absolute and utter fear of mortality. Um, some people are not afraid of dying, but most people are afraid of dying, of non-existence. So that religion is a way to, you know, deal with that. But, but yes, 100%, you can have a moral code that has nothing to do with religion whatsoever or God or any other supernatural being, um, no matter what religion you come from or believe in. Um, and of course, if you if, if you read, you know, I studied philosophy in college, so there are so many ways of approaching uh, ethics and morality, but you're absolutely right about that. Now tell me, Jason, about your music. You, you play in a band still now, right? You're, you're really into your music. Well, we have, we have been very um, sort of COVID restricted over the last couple of yeah. years. Uh, so we, the last time we played a show was, uh, it was probably about nine months ago. We played a summer show, um, uh, about an outdoor backyard private party, but you know, I'm in a, I've played the bass for, um, well, I guess I played the bass since I, since my freshman year in college, because it was too expensive for me to have a car, uh, on campus. So I sold my car and I used that money to buy my first bass. I had played guitar, um, you know, uh, acoustic guitar in, in junior high and high school. Um, I was never really that good at it. I just didn't practice that much. I was never in tune with the six string. Uh, but, but once I picked up the bass, I was like, all right, this is my groove. Um, and, uh, so I've been, I've been in and out of bands for 30 years, um, mostly doing classic rock type covers, um, which is the band I'm in right now, but I've done, I've done original music also. I've put out three different CDs with three different original bands. Um, you know, none of it spectacular, but I've, I've tried to make a go like, you know, 15, 15, 20 years ago now, I was, you know, playing the playing the Seattle circuit in a sort of hard rock heavy metal band and doing late night gigs where you're you get a you get a 30 minute set at, at one o'clock in the morning <laughs> and, and yep. you're loading you're loading your stuff out into a back alley. And, you know, I've I've done that. And there's a, there's a, you know, it's a great amount of fun doing that. I mean, I've played I've played um, big shows and small shows. I played festival shows and. Um, but right now, you know, COVID has shut everything down, so we can't even get bar gigs. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's, it's, it's great. You know, I, I, I also toured the country, you know, and it's an amazing way to get to know America on a tour bus. I'll tell you as a musician, you stay in motels in the middle of wherever you land, middle of the night and get to know little cities and towns and, you know, play for, for people and connect to them. So yeah, being, being a musician yeah. is, is a wonderful experience. And, uh, I think it, it adds a lot to, um, you know, to your, to, to, to your character and your personality. So, so look, I, I really want to, in subsequent um, conversations, go through the more up-to-date political stuff, but I'd like to know more about your teaching because that really is the foundation of who you are as a person. You were a public school math teacher for many years. You want, you want to tell us more about that? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, start with how I got into education. Um, you know, I graduated University of Washington in 95 with a political science degree and a real distaste of politics, <laughs> you know, by the time I got my political science degree and had been through all of the 300 and 400 level classes and writing my thesis, I was just like, my God, our politics <laughs> are just awful because mm -hmm. I did have an idea, you know, 
um, you know, I went from, I, I switched majors from, I was, like I said, I was going to be a veterinarian. So I was initially biochemistry and then, you know, not a veterinarian because, uh, you know, reasons. And then I, I, I tried civil engineering and I can't write computer code for anything. So that wasn't going to work because I was failing Fortran. Um, and, uh, then I went into education. Um, and this is an interesting thing. So I'll tell you that, that this is my, my father. Um, my dad, actually, I was fortunate enough that my dad paid for college. Now college, when I started in 89, it wasn't that expensive. It was full room and board was $10,000 at the university. In fact, it wasn't even that it was $8,000. Um, right. when I went to college and my father paid for it. Um, but when I switched my major to education, he yanked my funding. He said, I'm not going to pay for you to be a teacher. Huh. Wow. <laughs> so he, he, as a conservative, right. Um, he just did not like the education system. He thought that he thought the teachers were full of shit and that they, you know, that they were, he just didn't think it was a valuable profession. Um, and so I ended up, you know, switching to poli sci, which for some reason he did not complain about. <laughs> and, and I really enjoyed, but then yeah. when I, you know, like I said, when I got out, I, I didn't want to go into politics, which, which is what I, you know, I had this idea that, you know, I would go, I would go work as a, as a clerk or a, something, may, maybe go to law school, but just decided I didn't want to do any of it. And I kind of bummed around for a couple of years. Um, and when I say bummed around, I, I really mean like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Um, and I worked, you know, I was a, I was a broiler cook at the Red Robin and, and then I moved down to, so once I, I, I kind of expired on my bumming around, um, and I moved back in with my parents who, who were, who were down in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, and, uh, that was when I went, met my first wife, um, and got into teaching. Um, I got a job as a rec director at a local private elementary school. And so, I was teaching, um, and I say teaching, yeah, I wasn't required to be a licensed teacher at the time. I had a degree. They were thrilled that somebody who had a college degree wanted to do this job. And I was just like, hey, I need some money. I want to try this thing out. Um, and so I ran the summer program. I was busing kids to the zoo and to the science center and, um, you know, uh, organizing games for them. And then I said, wow, this is really something. This is, I'm, I'm good at this. You know, I'm good at this and it's, and it's fun. And I didn't want to do elementary school. I was doing K through five at the time. Um, I knew I didn't want to do elementary school, but that's where I got my start. And so when I was down in Albuquerque, I was like, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to go get an education degree. And so I did, I did night school for, for two years, um, got my bachelor's in education in, in, uh, 1999. Um, and by that time I wanted to come back to Washington because Washington was so I did about two and a half, three years in Albuquerque. And then I told um, my ex-wife, I said, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go back to Washington. It is, it is brown here. <laughs> I need to get back to the green and I need to get back to the ocean. So mm -hmm. we moved back up here and I was hired um, almost instantly because um, I was doing, uh, I was substituting and I was substituting in a high school math class. Um, and it was algebra two, it was algebra two trig. And the, the teacher was gone on a long-term thing. Um, and so I had been teaching there for three months and, and my colleague across the hall, um, uh, he, he said, why don't you apply for this job? He said, this guy's not, he's not coming back. He got a job as a firefighter. So I applied for it 
Um, and they hired me. They were just like, yeah, you're great. <laughs> and, and then I told them, I was like, well, I don't have a math endorsement right now. Um, and so I had to go back to school yet again to get a math endorsement. Um, but that was it. You know, I was, I was in as a high school math teacher. I was like, wow, I engage with these kids really well. I love the curriculum. Um, I, I want to be a math teacher. I, I was a math teacher for, you know, 18 years. Um, and I, and I felt extremely lucky to have, uh, to have done that. Um, and, uh, to this day, um, if you're on my mailing list, uh, for my, for my campaign, I just, last week I had, uh, three students write testimonials about being in my classroom, you know, well over a decade ago. Um, and they were, they, those, those were wonderful. Those are wonderful to read because you, it's, it's one, it's, it's one of the most incredible professions. And Leela was a nurse for a long time. Um, and like nursing, teaching is another one of those professions where you just transform people's lives. Um, and of course, don't get paid to do it while hedge fund managers are, are buying $50 million yeah. condos with, you know, leaving them empty. Teachers uh, can't pay the rent. I mean, it's terrible. If you're really working class, <laughs> you're, mm -hmm. you're stuck between this. Yeah, teachers should definitely get paid more. But I look at all the other people <clears throat> who don't have good salaries and who don't have good benefits and who don't have union and and I really wanted to be fighting for them more than I wanted to be fighting for teachers. And so other teachers sometimes would get frustrated with me because, you know, I was like, we should go, we should go support these other striking workers. And they're like, no, we're focused on education issues. And so, you know, yeah, I can, I can see, I, I can see that. And look, you and I both know that all professions um, of the working class are not, um, you know, the, the, the system structured in such a way where it's nearly impossible to have a rewarding, dignified, productive life because all the resources are being hoarded. So it doesn't matter whether you're, you're a teacher or a nurse or any of the other professions you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and, but I, and, I, and I felt like, you know, I, I felt like I was well rewarded in the fact that I loved my job also. Which is wonderful. What, I, what I'd like to do is, since we're going to do a number of these conversations, um, I want to sort of wrap this piece of it, um, which is really the initial introduction to who you are pre-politics, really, up to up to the point. Now, of course, you you did get political with the anti-war activism early on. Um, right. But but I wanted to just lay the groundwork of who you are. I, I find you to be, you know, a, 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 an upstanding, fascinating uh ethical human being, you know, one of the nicest people I've gotten to know, and I really want you to win this race. I think you are, the, even for those who don't believe that electoral politics can save anything or, or make the entire difference, we still need people like you in office if we're going to have anybody in office. <laughs> so well, so I, what I'd like I agree to with that. And, and I also, you know, I also agree with people who say that, you know, it, it are whatever saving of the future is going to happen it's not going to happen through electoralism like i i can agree with that like to a certain point but because we have electoralism available to us we should at least take advantage of that as much as we can and and so that's that's what i'm doing here but i i agree i mean we've got to we've got to have uh we've got to do our best to um commandeer electoralism as much as we can but we also have to get out into our communities and make sure that they're that they're functioning and safe and, and, and which you do you're always on the ground and what i love about what you do is you're always on the ground um showing up um at protests at strikes 
you're always supporting the people in the streets and and i appreciate that about you so what i'd like to do jason i want to wrap pretty soon if nobody has questions and then um next week or maybe even later this week we'll have a subsequent conversation really focusing on your race but what we should do here is just give the broad contours of you know which district you're in it's washington too um who you're running against and um you know, when, when the, when is the election sort of the mechanics of what people sure, would need sure. to know if they want to support your race, you know, your website, et cetera. So you can give us a few minutes on that. Absolutely. So I'm running in uh, Washington's second district. Um, if you're at all familiar with the geography and know where Puget Sound is, I am on the east side of Puget Sound uh, where Seattle is. I'm, my district starts about 20 miles north of Seattle at the Snohomish King County uh, border. Uh, it goes all the way up to the Canadian border with re- redistricting now, um, and it includes the islands in the North Puget Sound. That's Whidbey Island, um, Camano Island, and the San Juan Islands. Um, so you'll notice if you follow if you follow me on Twitter, you notice I'm taking a lot of ferry rides to to get to the people um, that I need to connect with to tell to tell me about um, to tell them about my race, uh, which you know, and I think we've got uh, absolutely unique beauty here. Um, I talk often about the fact that I can essentially step out my door. I can see mountains east, south, uh, east, south, north, and west. Um, I can see Mount Rainier to the south. I can see Mount Baker up to the north. I've got the Olympic Peninsula I can see, and I got Cascades uh, that I can see also. Um, and we've got you know wonderful forests here, and we've got of course the Puget Sound, so we're right next door to the ocean. I mean, uh, it is. It is really um, a fantastic combination of just about every beautiful bit of nature you can get. Um, so I feel extremely fortunate uh, that my parents brought me here back, back in 1983 um, and that this is where I ended up making my home. I've lived in this district since 1999. Um, and, <coughs> excuse me, um, I'm, I'm running against um, a 22-year corporate incumbent, uh, takes a ton of money from the fossil fuel industry and the war machine. He's fourth ranking Dem on the House Armed Services Committee. Um, He is the chair of the Aviation Subcommittee of Transportation. He's actually running to be chair of transportation right now. Um, I want to prevent that from happening because I don't think we're going to get the transportation systems that we truly need in this country. Uh, Green, sustainable, really focusing on rail, getting cars off the road. I don't think we're going to get any of that if we've got somebody who is chair of that committee um, who has taken all of the money from those industries and from the fossil fuel industry. So um, that is uh, that is a huge concern for me in winning this race. Um, I, I want to block that. Um, but and tell us, and, 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 and the, the, it's, a, it's a top two primary. Can you explain how yeah. it works in Washington State? So it's, it's the other two states that I'm aware of that have this are California and Louisiana. So basically anybody who files to be on the ballot, it goes, they go to the primary. Uh, right now I'm collecting signatures to be on the ballot. Um, we, will, we will be on the ballot with, uh, well, in 2020, it was myself, the Democratic incumbent, and six Republicans who had filed. Um, and I came in third place. I came in third place by 1% of the primary electorate, uh, electorate. It was 2,500 votes separating second and third place. Had I gotten 2,500 more votes, it would be me and the incumbent, two Democrats, 
going head to head towards the general. That is obviously the goal in 2022 here. Um, we've already got four Republicans who have committed to filing. Uh, so we like that. The more Republicans file, the more they're going to split their vote. Um, and we have been doing just an intense amount of outreach all over the district um, in the last couple of months. And we're getting really, really good response. So the goal is to be on the ballot next to the incumbent. Um, and we will just fight it out down the stretch. Uh, and, and when that happens, the big money is going to pull out all the stops to, to prevent me. They are already um, giant corporations are already earmarking tens of thousands of dollars for the incumbent to spend in the primary and they are not trying to defeat the Republicans. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. The, so they know the Republicans got no shot in this seat at all. Uh, exactly. Money, they, they are, they are, they are well aware of me. Um, they, they want to make sure I don't make it onto that general election ballot um, because they know that I've got a good shot at winning the seat. If, if it's me and the incumbent together. And, and that's what we, what we need to do um, is, you know, get to the point where candidates like you, win these races and because your set of principles, your values, your beliefs um, are squarely in line with leftist beliefs. Um, now, are you, you are anti-capitalist, Jason? I, I am firmly anti-capitalist. Yes. Um, okay. And, okay. And, but I'd say, you know, you know, I am, I am there. Um, I am there to do everything I can to stop the deleterious effects of, of, capitalism i mean it's it's uh it is a it is a terrible system it is a brutal and unjust system um and people seem to think that you have more freedom under capitalism and i would say that probably 70 percent of this country uh is actually not living in freedom right now because they can't pay rent and they can't pay for health care and they can't you know exactly it's, 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 i don't i don't know i don't know where people are seeing freedom in that freedom to starve is not a freedom that i want Precisely. And um, if this is the best humanity can do, a system of exploitation and the vast, the vast majority of human beings suffering just to just to get basic necessities, this is not this is not the best humanity can do. And we know that. So so what I like to do, Jason, I want to wrap. This is fascinating to me. I could have 20 conversations with you. What I'd like to do in the next conversation um, and we'll schedule it and we'll let people know when it is either later this week or, or the usual slot, which I've been doing, which is Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific where we get into the real details of your platform, your beliefs, your political beliefs, um, and more about the actual nitty gritty of, of the race itself and this really horrific democratic establishment that, that just really needs to go. Um, yeah. But, uh, and, and it needs to go, it needs to go at all levels. I, I, I would just want to throw one more thing out there before we wrap up today. You know, um, I am working to get local Democratic Party organizations. So we've got county and legislative district um, Democratic Party organizations. And I'm a member of one of them. I was the parliamentarian for one of them. And, you know, I've been on the Washington State Democrat State Committee uh, fighting for progressive policy, you know, in, in terms of our platform and our resolutions. And I was always extremely at odds um, <laughs> with, with the executive board and the chair of the party. And I actually ran for chair for state party chair in 2018, but they, the democratic establishment is so threatened by me at this point that my own county democratic organization last week, they literally changed the endorsement rules to prevent me getting endorsed. And what they did was 
in, in 2020, the endorsement rules are that if I don't have the recommendation of the endorsement committee and this endorsement committee is unelected, they're all appointed. Um, and if I don't get their approval, like their recommendation, uh, back in 2020, I still only needed a 50% plus one vote of the general body to get endorsement. Well, just last this last weekend, they changed that rule to a two thirds. So I'm not getting the endorsement of the or the recommendation of the endorsement committee. And that essentially means that I'm not going to get the endorsement of my county. And I said, fine. And I withdrew my request for endorsement. I said, I'm not even going to go through the process any further from here. But that is that is how the lengths that they are willing to go to be undemocratic, to prevent democracy from actually happening. You know, and I've explained my races. We need to have a conversation. You know, uh, my candidacy can push the Republican off the ballot. Don't you want to push the Republican off the ballot and have two Democrats having a conversation about what is the best policy? What are you afraid of there? And we're going to, and we're going to, that's a great, that's such an important point. I'd like to have an entire conversation with you, Jason, about how the Democratic Party um, establishment, the Democratic Party overall, does everything possible to squelch any threats from the left, whether it's, whether it's Green Party candidates, independent candidates, or anti-capitalist leftist candidates like you who are still running as Democrats, because that's the only way you can actually run in your state. And because I've been an advisor to a number of progressive um, Democratic socialist candidates, leftist candidates, um, and in every single situation, I've never seen more ruthlessness than when the Democratic Party establishment or system at the, at the local, state, or national level wants to crush these threats. You know, we've seen it at, the, at a bigger scale with, 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 with Bernie Sanders. And by the way, that's another conversation, too, that you did a lot of work for Bernie in, in Washington state. Yep. So why don't we do this? Let's, let's have a follow-up conversation. I always like to keep these things to under an hour because I value sure. everybody's time in the evening. Um, so why don't we regroup? We'll set a new date for the next conversation and get into the real details of, of, of your race. Um, I don't see anybody queued up for questions. So uh, I'll say, Jason, thank you so much for this initial conversation. And uh, it's really an honor and a privilege to, to work with you um, on your race and to help bring somebody of your, you know, just of your quality as a human being Um to, to, to get more attention, right, and to hopefully get elected. And, and, and thank you to every single person who, who joins these conversations, listens in, participates, and to everybody who listens when it's in podcast form. So just in an upcoming episode, remind me to talk about how the Washington State Democrats suspended me. <laughs> yes, we <laughs> should talk about that. That's a fun story. When, they talk, when you talk about how they will go after leftists, that's the story to tell. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Uh, uh, you know, now I can get back to my regularly scheduled uh, Twitter programming where I'm taking a look at Nancy Pelosi repeatedly calling for a strong Republican Party. <laughs> so so uh, that's that's where we stand with the Democratic Party. All right. All well, right. Thanks, thank you, Jason. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, we're going to wrap it. Thank you all. Yeah. Thanks, evening. everyone. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye bye.